The slow creak of a footstep in the hall. The knife missing from the rack. The bloody handprint on the mantle. Follow the signs. See the clues. And come to the post-culture mystery hour. This week, a strange tale of death to arouse your interest. The Murder Box, brought to you by The Post-Culture Podcast. I knew the chair was safe. I had watched someone else sit in it for a period of time and observed them and the chair in equal measures for some time afterward. The person did not expire from any malady that could be related from their time reclining in the chair, and the chair itself had received no further visitors. With a careful eye, I scanned its subdued flowery upholstery for the glint of poison needles. I pressed carefully on the seat and backing, inspecting the underside as well as I could, without letting up my guard. Then, with the utmost caution and deliberate slowness that made my thighs ache, I seated myself. I felt no pinpricks and no calamity was instigated. I allowed my body to ease in slow increments into the cushioning, my muscles drawn tight like steel cables vibrating with tension, relaxed ever so slightly. This rest, though, was only for my drained body, my mind and my senses were still strung tight. And from this position, I could see the other, the only other, along with myself. He was the only guest in the house not yet departed. He was not seven feet from me in a chair with a high back, resting in a parody of my caution. His body draped out as if he had collapsed lazily into it. One leg rested over an arm of the chair and his gaze rested comfortably on the ceiling. He played the role of ignoring me utterly as I watched him intently, waiting for any sign that he would make a lunge across the space between us. His eyes only occasionally glanced in my direction as if just to note my continued presence before moving on to other vantages, my existence no more important to him than the dull landscape portraiture hung around the room or the table of crystal containers full of port and fine spirits just to his right. Not that either of us would drink from any of these, as they had most certainly been poisoned, some of them many times over. There was nothing we needed to say to each other, no reason to waste breath with words. Words were just tools to distract, and we were both beyond those games. With all the other guests gone, we were playing on a higher level. 
It was simpler, more focused and direct, and so much more difficult. Time for me is marked by dwindling, at least in the long term. All the clocks here tell different times, so other means are required to fulfill the need to mark chronology of history. Meal times occur every four hours, with a 12-hour break we call night, but the false weather outside corresponds to no such schedule, and it all becomes a blur after a while. So the only important marker for how long I've been in this place is how many fewer guests there are than when I first arrived. There were a hundred of us at first, now there are two. The number drops, time moves on, each loss a monument to our shared sense of time. For our purposes, here, it's as good as any calendar, though we can only flip back, not forward. I've murdered almost a dozen people since I arrived in this house, doing my part to bring history to an end. It began in a bedroom. I woke up fully dressed, laying on top of a bed in a darkened room with a dim light coming through a crack between thick red curtains. I did not know this room. I had fallen asleep in my own room wearing a silk negligee that had been a gift from an ex-lover, the slender slice of fabric the only memento I'd kept from that ill-fated relationship. Now I wore a well-cut black suit and a white blouse. My shoes were comfortable black ballet flats. My long black hair was tied into a tight bun, as I preferred. The clothes were comfortable, sensible, modestly stylish, and tinged with vile repulsiveness as it was clear they had been put on me by strangers, intimate with my size and tastes. The thought of unknown hands on me, strapping on my bra, running fingers through my hair, slipping shoes onto my feet, sent a chill through me. It occurred to me as I rose from the bed that I felt clear as well as rested, no sense of grogginess or of having been drugged in any way. I stepped over to the curtain and pulled them back. Rain pattered against the window, but I couldn't hear it. I placed my hand against the glass. It was room temperature, and a tap against it made it clear it was dense, as tough to break as a concrete wall. Outside, I could see a well-manicured lawn with a line of fir trees about a hundred yards in the distance. The room itself was appointed with an elegant simplicity that harkened back to an indeterminable era. A double bed with a downy comforter that still held the imprint of my body. A closet full of clothing exactly like what I was wearing. A small sink with a drawer next to it full of brandless cleaning supplies and toiletry items. On a small writing desk, I noticed a gilded invitation card. In a print that matched the room's tasteful elegance, it merely stated, please adjourn to the dining room for further elucidation. Yes, further elucidation. As if anything had been elucidated so far, I carefully turned the handle of the door and found it unlocked. With an old-fashioned key still inside its old-fashioned lock, I stepped out of the room, locking the door and pocketing the key. I was at the end of a long hall with red wallpaper, red carpeting with floral borders, and other doors similar to my own, all of it dimly lit by electric bulbs behind etched glass frames that lined the walls. A woman, also dressed in a black suit and white blouse, though in a skirt that ended at her black stockinged knees, came out of a room at the end of the hall, looked around furtively, 
and headed for the stairs. I had never seen her before, and she didn't seem to notice me. Two men then came out of separate rooms. One asked the other, somewhat abashedly, where he was. The other replied he was wondering the same thing. Together they began to walk towards the stairwell. I followed shortly after. The stairs fed into a hallway which fed into the grand staircase to the main hall. Others were entering the hall from other stairwells, and it was clear already the house was considerably large. Slowly we worked our way down, each in their own state of mind, few talking, all dressed in the same color patterns. The hall slowly filled, and people began to explore the house. A few tried the large, elegant front door, but it soon became clear it was merely decorative and utterly unmovable. In short order, the dining room was discovered, and we began to file in. The room was large, with five long tables with seating for twenty people apiece, each seat assigned. The magnitude of what had happened became clear to me then. No one here seemed aware of what was happening or how they had gotten here. A hundred people stolen from their lives and brought to this place. Some spoke excitedly, some hysterically, some asking the same obvious questions over and over. Many, such as myself, remained quiet and waited. The growing chatter was soon silenced by the sound of a gong that seemed to emit from nowhere in particular, yet filled the room. This was followed by the sound of an old-fashioned record needle striking its groove, a gentle static hiss and pop, and a voice asking us to be seated. The record continued as such. We hope that you find your accommodations comfortable, as you may be here for some time. Meals will be served in this room at regular intervals. You will not see them arrive or see them be cleared. There are no servants, and no one living in this home other than you, our guests. Feel free to explore the residence in full, and by all means look for an exit. There is not one to be found, but by all means occupy your time as you see fit. There is only one fact that should guide your behavior here. And that is that only the last one of you alive will be permitted to leave. Naturally, you will find that the only way to secure your escape is to dispatch with your fellow guests. Your home here is amply supplied with the more subtle tools of interpersonal destruction so as to assist you in this endeavor. You may hold some romanticized notion of moral conduct and by all means cherish these feelings. For your fellow guests will be all too happy to dissuade you of them in due time. For those of you, however, who itch for a chance to immerse yourself in wholesale slaughter, temper yourselves and be warned. There are rules of engagement here, and their violation will be fatal. Any fellow guest can accuse you of murder and if they prove their accusation through logic or evidence, you will die immediately. False accusations will lead to the death of the accuser, so be sure of your facts. These rules are in place for the same reason all of this is in place, that being because the outcome it provides amuses us. We don't wish to watch you merely slaughter yourselves like a pack of rabid vermin, the risk of being caught 
and its consequences make the activities more subtle, more strategic. It should also encourage the more creative among you to rise to heights of artistry in a very deadly game. For now, get to know your fellow guests, get to know your home here, as the house holds many secrets. And breathe easy now, for it may be the last time you do so. The game has already begun, and it won't be completed until all but one of you is gone. The recording ended and was followed shortly by a wave of confused chatter, many asking questions that no one here would ever be able to answer. It was all useless din to me. I looked at the house now in a new light, detail sticking out to me that I hadn't paid mind to before, the odd spacing of the walls and the rooms possibly indicating secret passages, the row of bottles on a shelf, some for hygiene, some for cleaning, all potential poisons. I noticed the table in front of me was fully set for a meal that was clearly not going to be served, each place appointed with a small but formidable steak knife. I reached and picked up a napkin, checking quickly to make sure I wasn't observed, and wrapped up the knife at my place, sliding it into my sleeve. I got up and worked my way through the crowd and out of the room. A few others had left and were talking in small groups out in the main hall, or sitting alone in corners crying. A few called out to me as I passed, but I ignored them and continued up to my room. I promptly locked the door, sat on the bed, and began to compose my thoughts. A few things were immediately apparent to me. It would not be possible to hole up in a room and wait for most of the initial slaughter to end. I had no illusions even then that my fellow guests would refuse to participate. My room had running water, but food would be difficult to procure in large quantities, and the safety of the rooms was questionable. Acting on suspicion, I started tapping on the walls around the room. Inside the closet, I noticed a hollow sound against the back wall. I felt around the wall until I came to a small indentation. Pressing it opened the back of the closet and revealed a passageway that ran the length of the hall, with entrances to other rooms further down. In the darkness, I couldn't see how far it went. I closed the door slowly and stepped back into the room. How was I going to survive this? Isolation was a non-starter, a sure way to a lonely death. Killing others was not enough. One also had to be hard to kill. That meant, for the time being anyway, interaction. The threat of accusation was a shield against opportunistic assault. As for dispatching fellow guests, I paused at this thought. Here I was, thinking about how to murder those around me, as if it were the most blasé of technical problems. I had always accepted some kind of consensus morality about these things, but now I was in a situation where those convictions were directly tested. I felt none of the expected hesitation. I wondered how my fellow guests were dealing with these moral issues. I would find out soon enough. I spent my first few nights in the house sleeping under my bed. There was no way to secure the secret passage into the room with what I had on hand, until I could do so, I would be vulnerable when I slept, and every spare moment I could give myself would count. It was quiet, generally. Some people kept to themselves, many gathered in groups, and tried to organize something, anything that would get them out of this without playing the game. But the house, as investigation revealed, was truly inescapable. 
basically a sealed box surrounded by an artificial landscape. I listened, I watched, I mostly kept to myself. I knew I needed to reach out to others to help ensure my safety, but the wrong choice could be more dangerous than isolating myself completely. I was about to find out how dangerous making the wrong step could be. I had been asleep, under the bed as usual, for no more than an hour or so when I heard a gentle movement of the secret door opening in the closet, followed by the creak of the closet door. I didn't move, hardly breathed. I could make out the silhouette of a man's leather shoes stepping softly on the floor. He seemed to hesitate, seeing an empty room. As he looked around, I could hear his breathing, some incomprehensible mutters, disappointment maybe? The feet headed back to the passage. I heard the closet close, then the passage door. I got up, shoeless, feet moving silently across the carpet. I opened the closet door and listened. The slight sound of footsteps moving down the passage. I opened the door and watched the male figure move towards another door, light surrounding him as he entered. I followed swiftly, knife in hand. I came to the door as he closed it and heard him open the closet in his own room. I pulled open the passage door. I was right behind him. I grabbed a handful of his shaggy blonde hair, pulling his head back, and slid the blade of the knife across his throat before he could yell. The cut was rushed, jagged, and effective. He tried to spin around, but was off balance and fell in a pathetic jumble on the floor. I watched him choke and grasp uselessly at his torn jugular until lack of oxygen and blood made him lose consciousness and subsequently life. I moved quickly, carefully stepping around the growing red puddle to search his pockets. I found his room key, which I left. There was nothing else. He had been unarmed, possibly just exploring, possibly looking to strangle me in my sleep had the opportunity been there. I wiped the knife off on his pants and left the way I had come. Back in my own room, I examined my clothing. Other than some blood on my fingers, easily washed off, I was clean. Turning off the lights, I crawled back under the bed, still not trusting the room to be secure. As I lay in the darkness, I wondered if what I had done had been self-defense or an opportunistic murder. I fell asleep without coming to an answer and never gave it another thought. I was nervous coming down the steps to the dining hall for breakfast. I had killed, and regardless of the justification, an accusation would mean my death. Others were mingling around the room, gathering food that seemed to have arrived unassisted on buffet tables along the walls. I gathered a few morsels from what I had seen others eating without complication, and sat down to eat. The seats were no longer assigned, and I chose a quiet spot where I could watch my fellow guests without undue interruption. I noticed with some pleasure, and more than a little relief, that quite a few places seemed to be empty. Some people could be hiding, or exploring, or just not hungry, but I doubted that was the case for everyone for whom empty seats represented. As I imagined who in the room was a killer, a young woman close to my own age approached my seat and asked to sit next to me. I had no interest in conversation but remembered the thoughts I'd had about the dangers of isolation and motioned for her to sit. Her name, I soon found out, was Kathy. Her blouse had small ruffles. Mousy was an apt description. 
Her frazzled blonde hair was tied back in a practical, unassuming manner, and she spoke softly. I opened up slowly, giving up no more than she gave of herself. But mostly we sat in silence and watched our fellow guests. She was easy not to talk to, a skill I've always admired in my acquaintances. After one stretch of silence and some peckish eating, she said something that was clearly weighing on her. This is a dangerous place to be alone. I nodded slightly. She continued, having a friend, just one even, would be a great defense. For a while, I noted. It won't end well. I can't kill anyone, she said. I get sick at the thought. I don't want to think about how this will end. Right now, I just want to be able to sleep and know someone will hear me if I scream. I want to take a shower without visions of my own death haunting me. I watch out for you, you watch out for me. They'd have to kill us both to get away with it. I began to reflect on this, not sure if it was as sincere as it seemed or just a clever way to get me alone and vulnerable. But before I could answer, we received a quick lesson in the power of the house. Across the room, the first accusation began. A young man, nervous, hands shaking, pointed to a middle-aged man with a receding hairline that glistened with sweat. The young man shouted loud enough for the whole room to hear that the older man had killed a fellow guest. You followed him into his room, he said, voice trembling. I watched all night and you never left. There's a passage between his room and yours. It only connects to your room, his and mine. I just checked. He's been strangled to death. You killed the man in 203. The accused was stammering, red-faced, his guilt etched on his face with each beat of sweat. Before he could say anything coherent, there was a metallic click and a meaty thud. It took my eyes a moment to recognize what I was seeing. A slender steel spike had come out of the floor and impaled the accused man through his groin, slicing him through like little more than a tender cut of meat. The blade retracted as swiftly as it had come, and the deceased collapsed in a bloody heap on the floor. Screams and confusion filled the room. I felt Kathy's hand gripping mine under the table. I gripped back. The dangers of getting caught were driven home to me. As I watched the dead man on the floor, I knew I had a friend. Over the next few days, Kathy and I developed a routine. We were practically inseparable. We started sleeping in the same room, choosing hers as it seemed to have no secret entrances I could find. We spent evenings in a downstairs lounge, sipping tea and observing our fellow guests go about their intrigues. I found Kathy to be somewhat naive and trusting, up to a point at least, but in other ways a practical, level-headed person. We didn't exactly have fun together, but I needed someone I could trust, and she needed someone capable of spying potential threats, of which it turned out there were many. Once the seal had been broken, our fellow guests engaged in the game quite sportingly, if not always creatively, at least not at first. An assault with a fire poker led to a series of accusations that left three dead and made everyone much more careful about gathering their evidence. A rash of stomach cramps traced to a bottle of scotch whiskey someone had dumped some kind of cleaning chemical in taught everyone to be more careful about what they chose to eat and drink. It was during this time that I first became aware of the other. He was tall, lanky, with a loosely knotted tie. He never spoke to anyone. It was his manner as much as anything else that set him apart. 
While most of us were becoming increasingly cautious, he moved lazily, without care, he ate copiously, without regard to the possibility of poisoning, he wandered alone while we all paired off. He seemed to me a dangerous element, something unpredictable when I felt being able to anticipate what other guests might do was all that was keeping me alive. Yet there were more immediate concerns. After what I estimated to be a few weeks of fumbling, the guests of the house were starting to play the game in earnest, becoming more strategic in their approach. Kathy was morally opposed to actively participating in murder, and the defense I gained from having her trust was too vital for me to risk by removing any additional guests myself. By then I felt the death of everyone but myself was an inevitability and had no qualms about speeding things along. In deference to her feelings, I focused merely on outlasting everyone else without actively taking them out of contention. Others had no such scruples. I began to notice that a number of guests had gone missing rather rapidly. No accusations were made, though calling out an overly effective murderer would be in everyone's interest. I had no intention of taking on the task myself, since the risk of false accusation would be fatal. But a key piece of information fell into our lap. During our long evenings together, Kathy and I would often walk through the house, her talking quietly, me listening. A few nights in a row we passed a lounge on the first floor, with three people sitting in it. Later I would learn their names were Carlos, Susan, and Kyle. Carlos was a hefty Hispanic man with hands that had a slight tremble. Susan was a larger redhead with a flowing red hair. Kyle was a tall, nervous-looking Caucasian with a face that reminded me of a rat that a childhood friend of mine had kept as a pet, always looking as if something larger were planning on eating it at any second. The three talked together in the lounge, their voices getting quiet as we passed. Once we were outside of earshot, Kathy whispered to me that all three had been accused at one point or another, obviously unsuccessfully. Susan had even been accused by someone who had seen her go into the room of another guest and come out later in the evening the guest being found dead the following morning. But the accusation didn't stick, and the unfortunate would-be detective was dispatched quickly. This fact, that all three had been accused at one time or another, nagged at the back of my mind. I was trying to put my suspicions into some kind of order as we walked, when I heard Kathy say something that registered with me. She asked if I thought Susan wore a wig. I couldn't say on reflection, but Kathy was quite sure. I realized then I had a chance to take out three very effective fellow guests without violating Kathy's moral qualms. A suspicious mind has so many possible applications. Over the next few days, I enrolled Kathy in my investigation. She would gossip with other guests, safely tucked away in large groups that met in the dining hall. Meanwhile, I'd explore the house, particularly the rooms of guests that had disappeared recently. I'd found a flathead screwdriver in Kathy's room, and with some practice could force the lock of any room in the house with it. Little tools like this were found all over, clearly left by those who created the game to keep everyone on their toes. It was messy, noisy, but effective. By this time, most of the secret passages between the rooms had been noted and were public knowledge. Between my mapping out of the space around the victims and the information Kathy got from other guests, we started to realize just how effective this trio was. 
at least seven guests had been killed that we could tie to them, not including those who had died accusing them, but it was the fact of those later accusations that kept us from making our own. We needed something more certain. Within a couple of days, we had our opportunity. Kathy began to notice that Susan was keeping a close eye on another guest named Peter. We guessed that they might have chosen their next victim, so we decided to spend the evening not far from the lounge, just out of sight of the door. At this point, we were used to spending long periods of silence together, and we listened closely to their fairly banal conversation. I noticed from our limited vantage that Susan seemed to have gotten up to get drinks. Though I still heard her voice, it seemed she had not returned from the corner where the drinks cart was set. On a hunch, I told Kathy to keep watching the door and moved quietly towards the central staircase and then swiftly up to the third floor, where Peter's room was. I tried to picture where the lounge was in the house and moved towards there. Just as I came to the place I suspected, I heard the door of a room start to open. I moved around a corner and stayed still. The door was to the room directly above the lounge, three floors below. Just down the hall was Peter's room. I heard footsteps coming out of the room and down the hall quietly. I peeked around the corner just long enough to see a figure enter the room next to Peter's. I knew the room, as it had belonged to one of the trio's previous victims. I also knew it had a secret passage to Peter's room. Susan clearly had a key and entered it without issues. I followed, came to the door, and listened. The quiet sliding of the secret passage was my cue. I got out my screwdriver and opened the door as quickly and quietly as I could. The room was empty, a sterile smell of cleaning chemicals in the air. Bodies of murder victims disappeared as mysteriously as our dirty dishes. I listened against the wall and the slight sound of struggle growing faint. I moved under the bed as I heard the secret passage begin to open. I watched Susan's black high heels move strangely, unpracticed, and unsteadily across the floor. I took a risk and peeked out from under the bed. I saw flowing red hair obscuring Carlos's face as he moved out of the room, wearing Susan's clothes. After he had gone and closed the door, I crawled out and headed to the secret passage. Peter was dead on the floor, stabbed viciously with one of the ubiquitous steak knives almost everyone carried now. I wrapped the knife in a napkin I carried and left to head back downstairs. When I rejoined Kathy, she was practicing jumping with excitement. We walked away quietly, making sure not to let the trio see us. When we got back to our room, she told me she had used the mirror in her makeup compact to look into the room without being seen. Though she had heard all three talking, she had only seen Susan and Kyle, with Kyle imitating Carlos's voice. All the pieces were there then. It was a strange scheme, almost goofy but effective. There was a secret passage in the lounge, and the trio were the only ones who had found it. Susan was mostly bald and wore wigs. Three of them were included in her wardrobe. When they had chosen a victim, one of them would go through the passage dressed as the other. The others would imitate the voice of the missing member until they returned. It was practically idiotic. A thousand things could have gone wrong, but within the unique environment of the house and its process of punishing false accusations, the ploy had successfully thrown off suspicion of what they were doing. It didn't have to be perfect, just good enough to keep anyone from risking their necks to stop them. It was easy enough to bring to an end. The conspiracy required an untenable level of trust. I wrote out a simple note for Carlos and left it along with the knife under his door. 
The note read, I know you killed Peter. Kill the other two by tomorrow night, or I accuse you the following breakfast. Kathy wanted to accuse them all, but I warned that we could only be sure of Carlos, and that would leave the other two with every motivation to come after us. She had qualms, but letting the three destroy each other seemed preferable to taking direct action. Amazing how a thin veil of justice can excuse so much. The next meal was illuminating. The trio sat together as usual, but Carlos was noticeably sullen. A man who seemed used to disguising his emotions behind bluster, he was quiet, his eyes scanning the room furtively preoccupied. I could see his mind working. Killing off his partners, as my note commanded him to, would only buy him time, and probably not much. He would do it, I was certain. Unless he could find out who sent the note, he had no other options. That evening, I followed them to the lounge, keeping out of sight, to see how it would play out. Kathy declined to join. Her fickle morality allowed for vile murderers to destroy themselves, but she was still squeamish about the results. She locked herself in our room to wait for me to return. It played as well and as brutally as I could have hoped. Carlos served drinks laced with strychnine, and Sharon was dead in minutes. Kyle choked out an accusation against Carlos for killing Peter, and Carlos was immediately impaled with a spike through his foot that came out through his left eye. Three fewer guests, one set of effective competitors dispatched with. I headed back to the room to let Kathy know what had happened and to get some much-needed rest. The door was open. Kathy wouldn't do that, frightened rabbit that she was. I entered carefully, already knowing what I would find. Kathy was dead on the floor, a deep red cut in her throat, strangled with piano wire, stripped from the baby grand in the library. I didn't cry. I didn't even feel pity. She would never have survived to the end, and it was almost a relief to me that I wouldn't have to do it myself. I reached down and closed her dead, terrified eyes, and left to find an empty room and get what fitful sleep I could manage. My shield was gone, and that prospect frightened me. Someone had been able to come into our room, knew enough to know Kathy was alone, and had murdered her quickly and quietly. But whoever the killer was, I was not going to lose this game. And they were about to find that without Kathy's restraining influence, I would see it came to a quick and decisive end. In a way, I was free. At breakfast the next morning, I ate less than usual and spent my time watching others. The chatter was mostly about what had been found in the lounge that morning, which could not interest me less. A few glances were given to me, clearly noting Kathy's absence, suspicious minds working to turn this information to some kind of advantage. As I hadn't killed her, I felt no need to defend myself from accusing stares. Any accusation would just mean one less competitor. I focused instead on one other guest, the other. While everyone else chattered or focused on their food, he watched me, a sly smirk on his face. We watched one another from across the room. I knew he had done it, that he had killed Kathy. He practically dared me to accuse him, but seemed to know I wouldn't, that I was too cautious for that, too full of that self-doubt he didn't seem to possess in any quantity. In a house full of enemies, I now knew I had one specific opponent. By this point, there were only 32 guests left in the house. It was almost certain every single one of us was a murderer. Trust was gone. There were very few partnerships surviving. 
as any alliance would in the end become a competition to see who could betray the other faster. Everyone just wanted to survive. The naive and trusting were all weeded out. The incautious and incompetent were mostly gone as well, leaving only the lucky and the deadly. We were all hardened, suspicious, and willing to kill one another. I no longer had the defense of someone I could trust, so I needed to take new measures to protect myself. With a fairly good mental map of the house and its secret passages in my mind, and a clear idea of the empty rooms, I never slept in the same place, moving from room to room and only sleeping a few hours at a time. Anything I needed, I kept on my person. I watched my fellow guests, but never spoke to them. I watched the other most of all. He was almost lackadaisical in his approach, as if it didn't matter to him if he lived or died. But I noticed a method to his seeming uncaring attitude. He slept in public places rather than alone, napping in crowds. He ate ravenously as if he didn't care about poisoning, but was always the first to meal times. He killed impulsively, an opportunist, trusting on luck and instinct to carry him through. I wasn't even sure which room was his, if he had ever claimed one. I feared the other at first, but I was not without resources of my own. I collected various poisons from around the house and kept them in a series of small pockets I'd sewn into my jacket. Sewing being a talent Kathy had been kind enough to teach me during our many nights together. I chose my victims carefully, exploiting their habits and the fleeting moments when their caution was dropped. I noted one gentleman who rested in the same chair in the library every afternoon backed against a corner, with the full view of the room around him. He'd made such a row the last time someone else sat in the chair that everyone else avoided it. A few poison-tipped needles in the seat freed it up for anyone else who wished to use it. There was one woman who barely ate anything and only drank from the sink in her room. Her clothing, once form-fitting, now hung on her like drapery. A healthy dose of arsenic on the inside of the water tap made them fit even worse. One young man spent his days browsing the library, calmly reading, acting for all the world as if this were a quiet retreat for him. I was fairly certain he had strangled at least two people to death. I noted his habit of licking his fingers to turn pages and sprinkled some powder on the edges of a book he had left unfinished on the desk. The next day, he slowly poisoned himself page by page and was dead before he reached the index. These little adventures seemed to amuse the other at first. He looked at me with something that I read as respect, but as they added up, that look changed. He smirked less. It was when I injected an unopened bottle of cognac with a hypodermic needle loaded with a cornucopia of deadly additives, leaving little indication that the bottle had been tampered with other than the three corpses that surrounded it that evening, that I began to notice something like fear when he watched me. Maybe he began to realize that he had real competition, that there was a chance he might not survive this. Whatever his thoughts, his actions were dramatic enough. One evening, the house was rocked by an explosion that had most of the remaining guests running to the third floor. I remained in the library, curiosity being an indulgence I could not afford. A second explosion a few seconds later congratulated my prudence. Later I found a room had been wired with an explosive device made from household cleaners. A second explosive was attached to a trip wire in the hall leading to the room. When the guest opened his door, he was killed instantly. The first onlooker tripped the wire and set off the second explosion, four dead in a matter of minutes. A daring ploy, all in all, it took technical know-how few in the house possessed, and a willingness to risk your life playing with such toys in order for it to come off. 
When I saw the other later that evening, the smirk was back on his face. After this massacre, along with my own activities and some sundry other killings, we were down to five. I eliminated one by placing a series of poisoned needles in one of his spare suits. Another guest left when she fell down the stairs and broke her neck, and not being quite certain if she had tripped or was pushed. That left three. This should have left us at an impasse. If one of us died, the other would know who did it, make an accusation, and the game would be over. It would be a tricky balance to pull off, but I had given it much consideration. However, the third guest made these calculations all for nigh by hanging himself in the doorway of the library. This left us at an even greater impasse. Now we sit and wait for one of us to make a move. One of us will kill the other, that much is certain. Maybe we'll both die. My mind works out every move and counter move to infinity, endlessly trying to work out the puzzle of the man in front of me. I know one thing for certain. If I'm sure I'm going to die, I'll accuse him of killing Kathy. I'm sure he did it, but not so sure to risk my life. But if he bests me, I'll at least give Kathy a chance at some justice. Until then, I wait. We both wait and watch and plan. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Post Culture Podcast, Murderbox. This episode was performed by my lovely wife, Margaret. Music in this episode was performed by Psychic Mold, Umbridge Hill, Sewing Machines, with a Z, Dr. Quandry, Fourth Shift, and Slow No Wake. You can find them all at bandcamp.com except for Dr. Quandry, who you can find at his website, doctor, spelled out, quandry.com. I thank you for supporting the podcast, and I hope you all sleep well. <laughs> <laughs>